This is a Scream Queen production. Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday. And it actually is Tuesday this time. Imagine that. Today's episode is brought to you at the request of one of my patrons. One of the benefits that Patreon subscribers get at the Super Freak level is the option to choose an episode topic. And patron Michael Scott asked that I cover a case from his hometown of Charlotte, which is also the home of our Festival of Oddities. Which, again, thank you so much to everyone that came out for the festival. It was a beautiful day, huge turnout, such a good time. Uh, But then, of course, I went home and I freaked out about the event becoming a COVID hotspot for like two weeks. Even though, you know, we were as careful as we could be for an event that large. Um, But it has now officially been over two weeks Nobody's reported getting sick. The health department hasn't come kicking down my door, so I think that we're in the clear. So now, a full two weeks later, I get to actually enjoy what a success the festival was. And that's weird, isn't it? Kind of like living life two weeks at a time for the past year and a half. But that's a different conversation. Today, I want to tell you guys about a couple of wild weeks in the city of Charlotte back in the 1920s that resulted in one of the most heartbreaking trials the town has ever seen. I want to take a quick side note, though, here. Um, If you hear like a slight humming in the background during this episode, that's because my ceiling fan is on and we're all just going to have to deal with it. Because it is the end of September and it is still like in the 80s in Michigan, which is unacceptable, so not okay, Um, and I need my ceiling fan right now. So yeah, sorry if you can hear that. I don't know if the mic's picking it up or not, but it is what it is. Thank Mother Nature. Also real quick, before we get into today's episode, I need to thank our sponsor, Wicked Clothes. This is what I'm really excited about because I was wearing their clothes even before they sponsored the show. Um, Wicked Clothes is a company that has merch about pretty much anything paranormal. Bigfoot, Mothman, my favorite, ghost hunting. Take a look at what they've got and I'm sure you'll recognize some things that you've seen out and about in the world. It's wickedclothes.com. They just released their Halloween collection. It is absolutely Halloween season. There's some argument over when that begins. For me, that's like mid-August, but we're towards the end of September now, so it's definitely spooky season. They've got a whole new line out for Halloween. They also have some true crime merch. They've got a shirt that says True Crime Club, so of course you need to get that one because we're all in the True Crime Club, right? 
They've got another one that says serial killer documentaries and chill. So you got to grab that one as well. They've got paranormal investigator hats. So you can, you know, wear that next time you're out creeping around the cemetery late at night. Um, just so everybody knows that you're super official, right? <laughs> so I've got a few of their pieces. I got some t-shirts. I got this really cool Mothman sweatshirt in like bright neon colors. Tons of compliments on my shirts every time I wear them out. But the best part is that they're super, super comfy. They're lightweight, you know, true to size. They fit really well. The color holds up. Um, I've got a lot of dogs, so I wear a shirt one time and I've got to wash it because it's covered in dog hair. But it holds up really well to the wash. And I just, I love them. I love all of their stuff. I could have bought everything on the website. The good news is that you can because you can save 10% today by using code SODEAD at checkout. So go buy lots of stuff with that promo code and get a discount. You can also save a little time and just do wickedclothes.com slash SODEAD and that'll take you right to the discount. But go to the website, check out their stuff, Get some new merch for spooky season and uh, yeah, highly recommend. Like I said, I'm a fan and I've been a fan since since long before I got to talk about them on the show. So definitely go check that site out. Again, it's wickedclothes.com slash so dead for 10% off. Okay, back to our story. Picture it, Charlotte, Michigan in the late 1920s. It looked probably pretty much like it looks now. Those buildings downtown are old as shit. If you've been there, you know that. The Courthouse Square Museum, where we held the Festival of Oddities, or the Foo, as I like to call it, was still just the courthouse at that time. It was an active courthouse where every trial and court hearing in Eaton County was held. Um, And then beside that courthouse, attached to the sheriff's residence, which the sheriff's house is still there. Um, It's kind of on the back corner. It's got the same color scheme as the courthouse. It's this really cool old Munsters looking building. That's the sheriff's residence. And back in the 1920s, attached to that was the actual Eaton County Jail. The jail building is not there any longer. So back in the 20s, it was convenient to have the jail right in the middle of town. But, um, you know, by like the 70s when the population was growing, it was not ideal to have inmates hooting and hollering out the jailhouse windows at, you know, ladies trying to walk their dogs or push their kids in strollers through town square, right? So they moved the jail a little further out of town. They tore that building down. But... Back in the 20s, which is where our story takes place, that whole property was the hub of the Eaton County legal scene. Courthouse, jail, and sheriff's residence, all on the same piece of land, right in the middle of town. Got it? Good. That's important to remember for this story. That's why I'm talking about it way more than it sounds like I need to. So, Charlotte, 1920s, there were about 5,000 people living in town at the time, as opposed to over 9,000 people that live in Charlotte today. Fun fact about Charlotte that I just learned from good old Wikipedia, uh, it was named after the wife of one of the town's founders. So since it was named after a person, I'm just like, I'm guessing here, but I would bet you that her name was Charlotte, not Charlotte. So it probably wasn't always pronounced the way it is now. I guess, I don't know. I'm not the expert on that. Just kind of a thought I had when I read that. I just wonder 
when and why and if that changed over time. Anyway, let's get going. I'm rambling too much. It all began on Halloween night, 1926, when Eaton County Sheriff Glenn Dilley swore in a new deputy, a Charlotte native by the name of Cleo Platt. 37-year-old Platt was a Charlotte native, which I just said, but I typed it twice, so I said it twice. Um, He was born in the small town in 1889. He moved out to California at some point where he worked as a forest ranger for years, and he met and fell in love with Mary Robson, who had traveled to the U.S. from Australia with a friend. And she didn't necessarily plan on making the United States her home, but Cupid had other plans for her. So she and Cleo got married. They had two daughters, Shirley in 1924 and Doris in 1926. Uh, They moved back to Cleo's home state of Michigan. They spent some time in Battle Creek before they settled in Cleo's hometown of Charlotte. They opened a little cafe, the Parlor Car Sandwich Shop, on the southwest corner of Lovett and Cochran Streets. But the call to serve wouldn't let go of Cleo, and on October 31st, 1926, he was sworn in as a special deputy with the Eaton County Sheriff's Department the offices of which were conveniently located just a couple blocks from his home and business. What is a special deputy, you ask? Well, maybe you're not asking that, but I was asking that, so I had to look it up. Um, basically, a special deputy is a, is a part-time deputy, part-time employee, kind of at the sheriff's beck and call, so there to fill in if like there's a big case that requires a lot of manpower, if they're short-staffed, what have you. Um, He had, you know, he wasn't like a volunteer or anything. He had a badge and a gun and a uniform and all of that, but he just kind of worked on an as-needed basis, which was good. That left him time to, you know, run his cafe and take care of his family and all of those other things. So things were going good for the Platts. They had their cafe, their two precious little girls. Cleo, who went by the nickname Cap, was working part-time as a sheriff's deputy But, as this is a true crime podcast, a happy ending was not to be for the Platts. Because just a little over a year after he was given his badge and gun, Cleo Platt became the first Eaton County deputy killed in the line of duty. December 17, 1927 was a Monday. There was fresh snow on the ground as Cleo and Mary Platt closed up shop at the cafe around 2 a.m. and headed for home. They lived just down the block, so they typically walked to and from work together, even in the dead of winter. Downtown Charlotte was all but deserted, except for two young men at the service station across the street from the cafe, who seemed to be struggling with a flat tire. Cleo told Mary to head on home to the girls. I would imagine, since the girls were only three and one at the time, that they probably had a nanny or maybe like a live-in grandma or somebody at home, but... It was the 1920s, so who knows? So Mary continued on toward the Platt residence, and Cleo crossed the street to offer his assistance to the two young men. But these particular young men were not people that one would want to encounter alone late at night, even though they looked, from afar at least, like fine, upstanding citizens. James Bugs Morehouse and Hawthorne Sutton grew up on the right side of the tracks. Both were from well-known, well-to-do families. Bugs grew up in Charlotte, while Hawthorne grew up in Battle Creek. 
Both were clean-cut student-athletes with good educations and good reputations, and both were in love with beautiful young women. Hawthorne Sutton had recently married Frances Holds, a co-ed at Olivet College, where Bugs attended school, um, while Bugs Morehouse was engaged to be married to a nursing student at a Battle Creek hospital by the name of Esther don't know her last name, but because in every article I saw, her last name was just listed as Morehouse, so not sure what it was before she got married. Their wedding was scheduled for December 14th, 1927. So Olivet seems to be the common thread here because that is where Hawthorne's wife was going to school, and that is where Bugs went to high school and his brother went to college and all of his people lived. So that, that seems to kind of be the common thread, even though most of the articles I found said that the the boys met in Battle Creek. So Mr. and Mrs. Sutton and the soon-to-be Mr. and Mrs. Morehouse celebrated Thanksgiving together in 1927. As they sat around the dinner table having second helpings of turkey and potatoes, stuffing, I don't know, what else, pumpkin pie. Do you think, I wonder how different Thanksgiving meals were in the 20s versus today. Something to think about. Anyway, point is, They're having dinner, and their conversation turned to the financial troubles that both couples were facing. Hawthorne and his wife had just paid for a wedding, and they had her tuition bills. Bugs and his fiance were trying to save up for their wedding, and they were paying for her nursing school. And Bugs told his friend that he had an idea. He proposed a foolproof plan, heavy quotes around foolproof, that would make both couples rich quick. He and Hawthorne would steal a car from Battle Creek, drive north to Eaton County, hold up a few local service stations, then return the car to its parking spot before morning without the owner ever noticing it was missing. If their plan worked, they would repeat the process over several days until their bank accounts were stacked. Uh, The constant changing of vehicles and taking a vehicle from this county and committing a crime in this county at a time when counties really did not communicate with one another, that was kind of the plan. That was how they were going to fly under the radar and make it nearly impossible for the police to track them. Armed with a 38 caliber revolver registered to Hawthorne and a 45 Smith & Wesson that Bugs stole when he worked at the Battle Creek Post Office, the men carried out their first heist on December 8, 1927 at a service station in Charlotte. They absconded with $2. Granted, $2 was more in 1927 than it is today, but it's still definitely was not enough to build a new life on. So uh, two days later, they robbed a gas station in Eaton Rapids and a pool hall in Mulliken, netting nearly $200 that time. But things didn't go as planned that day. The owner of the gas station in Eaton Rapids died of a heart attack as a result of the stress from the robbery, officially making the two handsome young men with sharp clothes and tidy haircuts killers, even though that wasn't their intention. More robberies followed, and then on Bugs's wedding day, December 14th, 1927, he and Hawthorne robbed two service stations near Battle Creek the morning before the wedding. <laughs> I mean, at this point, they had amassed the amount of money that they'd set out to make at the beginning of their scheme. It had been a few weeks, but their greed was escalating, as was their addiction to the thrill of it all. 
In fact, the thrill became the whole point for Bugs, who, as a student at Olivet High School, developed a reputation as a leader in daredeviltry. That is an exact quote. That's definitely not a phrase I would ever come up with. He was credited with such hijinks as an exploding bonfire at a school event that was talked about for decades, um, fake holdups out near Pine Lake. So he and friends wearing masks and holding rifles would step out from the trees as cars approach. They would pull out their guns, terrify the occupants of the car, and then he would just go, ah, go on, we're only fooling. So really no point to it other than to, I don't know, see if they could get away with doing it unidentified. Just, yeah, just silly things that he did, dangerous things. They're lucky they didn't get shot by someone. But, you know, all of these things just because he he enjoyed the thrill. He enjoyed a good prank. He was a scallywag, that bugs. I don't know why he said that. On December 15th, the day after Bugs's wedding, he and Hawthorne embarked on their most ambitious spree yet. Just hold on for a second, though, because can we talk about how pissed Bugs's new wife had to be, poor Esther, at home the morning after her wedding, and her husband's like, okay, bye, headed out with friends. (sighs) He's lucky that the story doesn't just end right here with his murder. I'm telling you, seriously. Anyway, December 15th, the day after the wedding, um, they hit service stations in Battle Creek, Eaton Rapids, Grand Ledge, Lansing, went back through Grand Ledge a second time, and then returned home to their wives before the sun came up. But their reign of terror wasn't over. I mean, they hit several gas stations. Like it, They've been doing this now for three weeks a little more than like how, what what's the end game here there there really wasn't one for them at this point and that's where they got into trouble on december 16th 1927 the partners in crime started their day of debauchery early they robbed service stations in hastings and grand rapids followed by a hardware store in potterville so they were all over because if they started way down in battle creek and then went to hastings grand rapids and potterville like Those towns are really nowhere near each other. That's a few hours of driving today. And in 1927 on those roads and those cars, I mean, that that was pretty, pretty ambitious there. So the hardware store in Potterville, they broke into because they had damaged the stolen car that they were driving. And they broke into the hardware store to see if they could find the parts that they needed to fix the car. But once they were Inside the hardware store, they were like, hey, there's a lot of shiny stuff in here. So they stole a bunch of electronics and appliances instead. And rather than fix their car, they just took the keys to the shop truck and drove away in that. They then drove to Charlotte. So Potterville to Charlotte's not too far. We're back in the Lansing area now. Um, They drove to Charlotte where they stole Bugs's father's Model T Ford out of his garage. Um, and it's real late at night now. This is why the hardware store was closed. It's pretty late at night on the 16th. You know, his parents are sleeping. So he sneaks in, probably stole dad's car a million times in his youth because he was such a troublesome guy. So they take the car out of the garage and they make plans to ditch the truck because the truck is easily identifiable. It's got the name of the hardware company on the side of it. So it's nearly two in the morning by this point. So now we're into the 17th of December when Bugs, with Hawthorne following behind in the truck, pulled his dad's Model T into a service station in Charlotte on the northwest corner of Cochrane and Seminary. 
And this, friends, is where our two stories collide. As Bugs turned into the driveway of the service station to put air in the Model T's tires, he overshot the turn and he got the car stuck on the chain that was used to rope off the service station parking lot when it was closed, which it was because it was 2 o'clock in the fucking morning. So there he was, middle of the night, out in the cold and the snow, his flat-tired car stuck, struggling when Cleo and Mary Platt spotted him on their walk home. Cleo sent Mary home, told her, you know, keep going, I'm going to go help him out, and he called out to Bugs as he crossed the street, asking if he needed help. But when he shined, shined, shone, I don't know which one to use there, shined, shone, his flashlight at Bugs's car, he realized that the situation he'd just walked into was not a good one. The back seat of the Model T was filled with the electronics that had been stolen from the hardware store earlier in the evening. As a deputy, Cleo Platt was well aware of the string of recent holdups and robberies. And you know, he could tell. It's not like Bugs Morehouse was a door-to-door appliance salesman. These were obviously stolen goods. Now, Here's something you need to remember as I tell you this part of the story, because there are two different versions, the one that Cleo Platt told on his deathbed and the one that Bugs Morehouse and Hawthorne Sutton told in court. When this encounter went down, Cleo Platt was not on duty, not in uniform, not carrying his badge, just a guy out walking the streets of downtown Charlotte in the middle of the night. He ordered Bugs and Hawthorne into the car, Bugs was standing beside the car trying to get it untangled from the chain that he'd run into, and Hawthorne was still behind the wheel of that stolen truck. According to Bugs, he said something to the effect of, you know, who the fuck are you telling me what to do? Uh, Cleo Platt did not identify himself as a police officer, but instead pulled back his jacket to reveal a pistol holstered to his hip. So Bugs and Hawthorne got into the Model T, Hawthorne behind the wheel, and Platt jumped up onto the left side running board and ordered Hawthorne to start driving north as the jail was conveniently located just a couple blocks away. Bugs and Hawthorne both later testified that they had no idea that the man who'd commandeered their vehicle was a deputy. He didn't identify himself, he was wearing street clothes, he didn't show them a badge, he just pulled a gun and said, start driving. So as far as they knew, they were being robbed or possibly worse. So the boys allegedly were unaware that Cleo Platt was a police officer. But Cleo Platt was unaware that he was not the only one armed as the trio sped toward the jail because Hawthorne Sutton had his 38 special and Bugs Morehouse still had that army issue 45 that he'd stolen from the post office when he worked there. So Hawthorne, as they're driving, he kind of like was swerving the car all over the road, trying to shake Cleo Platt off, but Cleo held on. So Bugs pulls out his 45 and says, you better let go, hands up, but still Cleo held on. So Bugs fired his gun twice, hitting Cleo once in the shoulder and once in the abdomen. The off-duty deputy fell from the car and rolled into the street just north of the Cochran-Lovett intersection, bleeding profusely, and the Model T disappeared into the darkness. As Deputy Platt dragged himself from the street to the steps of the Michigan Bell Building, where he knew there would be an operator on duty, a local vagabond watched from the shadows. 
The man, Sam Wheeler, later testified that he didn't render aid or call for help because, with a reputation like mine, they probably would have blamed it on me. So he disappeared, leaving Cleo to pull himself up the front steps of the telephone company building, leaving a ghastly trail of blood in his wake until he got the attention of operator Agnes Andrews, who called the hospital to send an ambulance. 38-year-old Cleo Platt was taken to the local hospital, where he languished in excruciating pain for several hours before passing away just before noon on December 17, 1927, making him the first Eaton County deputy to die by gunfire. He left behind his wife, Mary, and two young daughters— three-year-old Shirley, and one-year-old Doris. Before he died, though, he was able to give a description of Bugsmore House and Hawthorne Sutton and the vehicle they were driving to the sheriff. And with that, the manhunt was on. Eaton County Prosecutor Fisk Bangs, what a name, first of all, told the Charlotte Republican, which was a newspaper, not a person, um, told the Charlotte Republican, If you could have seen Platt at the hospital as I saw him in his intense suffering, you would take a special delight, I am sure, in seeing these murderers disposed of by any form of torture. I could operate a device pulling the arms and legs out from their sockets and rub my hands with glee throughout the operation. Um, so, (laughs) like, I get being angry and I get being passionate, but for a prosecutor to make a statement like that to a newspaper, uh, that is a little, little wild to me. So one would think with so many people looking for them that Bugs and Hawthorne would lay low, right? They'd amassed enough ill-gotten gains. They'd accidentally killed two people now, the gas station owner who had a heart attack and now an off-duty police officer that they'd shot and killed in the middle of Charlotte's town square. Things had gone too far, gotten out of hand. The outlaw thing needed to come to an end, right? Well, they did take a break for a few weeks, But by January 11th, 1928, they were back with a bang, literally. They held up three different service stations that night. And then a few days later, on January 13th, while Bugs Morehouse was out to the movies with his wife, Hawthorne Sutton was arrested by Detective Harold Brown, a rookie with the Battle Creek Police Department who'd been diligently working the case. That night, Bugs went to visit his buddy Hawthorne at the hamburger stand where he worked, and he was informed that Hawthorne had been picked up by police. He raced home and told his wife, his brand new wife, by the way, remember, they had only been married for two days when he killed Cleo Platt. Um, He told her that the police had gotten Hawthorne and he needed to leave town until things died down. Not likely that things were going to die down, dude. Like, you've got a prosecutor that literally wants to rip you limb from limb and has told a newspaper this. So (laughs) Um, Esther insisted on going with him. At first he told her, you know, no, it's too dangerous. I don't want to drag you into this, all that dramatic stuff. But she insisted. So they threw some shit into bags and they took off. They headed west, and they made it about 50 miles west of Chicago before Esther crashed their car into a ditch in the rain. Then they took trains, and they hitchhiked their way to Missouri. They stole a car. They were arrested by police for stealing the car. 
um, where Bugs used all of the money that they had left, the last of his blood money, his ill-gotten gains, everything he had to bribe a Waynesville, Missouri police officer to let them go. So they were free, but they were penniless and without a car. To get them out of Dodge, this crooked cop bought them train tickets back to Chicago. Um, Once they were back in the Windy City, Esther pawned her brand new wedding ring to buy two train tickets to Sturgis, Michigan, where her mom lived. Once they got to Esther's mother's house, their plan was to get in touch with Bugs' father, ask him for money so that they could take off again. But they weren't quick enough because a local spotted Bugs in town and alerted police, who took him into custody without incident. Almost. Almost. Um, He escaped the first time that they tried to apprehend him. So they came to his mother-in-law's house and he got away. But it was January in Michigan and he escaped into a fucking snowstorm. So... Police made this big show of leaving the house, but they sneakily left one man behind. So when Bugs came back in, because it was blizzarding outside, he was arrested by that officer. Before we finish up this story, I do want to quickly thank our other sponsor for today's episode. Experience full plates and fuller wallets with America's best value meal kit. Every plate makes home cooking easy and affordable as a much cheaper alternative to takeout, but just as delicious. Nay, more so even. Getting dinner on the table every night, especially during the chaotic back-to-school season, can be a challenge. Let every plate plan, shop, and deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a delightful price. I waited a while, too long, before trying meal kits, thinking they might be too expensive, but every plate offers the same deliciousness as other meal kit services at a much lower price. And I can personally attest that the ingredients are high quality, the produce is fresh, and the recipes are quick, easy, and so good. If I can make an every plate recipe, anyone can do it. Trust me. Try Every Plate for just $1.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code SODEAD199. Again, that's everyplate.com slash SODEAD199 for just $1.99 per meal. That's up to $100 in savings. And huge thanks to Every Plate for sponsoring today's episode. All right, where were we? So Hawthorne Sutton has been arrested. Bugs Morehouse went on a little Bonnie and Clyde adventure with his new wife, um, but he's back home and he's been arrested in Sturgis. So Bugs was taken back to Charlotte to the Eaton County Jail, the very place that Cleo Platt was trying to take him on that fateful night, um, where he found his buddy Hawthorne Sutton waiting for him in a jail cell. When questioned, Bugs confessed to pulling the trigger, but he insisted that it was self-defense. He said that, you know, they had no idea that Cleo Platt was a police officer. As far as they knew, he was just some guy with a gun trying to rob them or kill them, or they didn't know what. Um, But this defense fell on deaf ears. Both men were charged with first-degree murder, Even though Hawthorne Sutton didn't fire a single shot, he was there, which made him guilty by association. The trial was an emotional one. Not only was it the first trial in Eaton County for the murder of a police officer, but even the judge himself 
seem to have a hard time reckoning such promising futures thrown away by such careless acts. He was said to be visibly choked up when he rendered two guilty verdicts and sentenced 22-year-old James Bugs Morehouse and 21-year-old Hawthorne Sutton to life in solitary confinement at hard labor at Jackson State Prison, which Michigan doesn't, hasn't, never has had the death penalty, certainly doesn't have a torture penalty that allows you to remove a prisoner's arms and legs and laugh about it, Mr. Prosecuting Attorney. Um, but so that was the worst that they could do was life in solitary confinement at hard labor. And that is what both of these young, handsome, promising futures lying ahead of them men were sentenced to. But this is not the end of our story. Things are about to get weird over here. Um, So a little over a decade into his life sentence, Bugs Morehouse, who was now in his 30s, began petitioning for parole. While in prison, he finished up his schooling, he completed a dental assistant program, he learned multiple foreign languages, And Benny found that he was gifted in the field of electronics. During his time, he built and installed intercom systems for three different Michigan prisons and several police departments across mid-Michigan. So while articles about Hawthorne Sutton's time in prison were much more vague, they were all kind of just like, He made the most of his time and he turned his life around, but no specifics about what he did. Um, There was a growing sentiment that both men should have their sentences commuted and either be released or paroled. They were young, impulsive boys when they gunned down a deputy, husband, and father. It was a spur-of-the-moment thing, not some premeditated attack. And, you know, maybe they were telling the truth about not realizing that they were being arrested and thinking that they were being robbed instead or that their lives were in danger. Both men got letters of recommendation for release from clergymen, businessmen, prison employees, police officers, uh, lawyers, and even, even Mary Platt, Cleo Platt's widow. Let's talk about what happened to Mary Platt after her husband's death for a moment, shall we? Remember way back at the start of the story when I told you about how she and Cleo met, that she was just visiting from Australia when she met the man of her dreams and fell madly in love. This meant she didn't have any family or anything in America. She wasn't planning on moving here. All she had was Cleo. And when he died, she was alone with two little girls in a country she'd only lived in for a few years. It wasn't easy, even with Cleo's death benefit, which who knows what the death benefit was for a part-time deputy in the 1920s. I'm guessing probably not enough to raise two children. At some point, Mary took the girls and went back to Australia. It's hard to discern exactly what happened, In some reports, it sounds like she was forced to go back, um, that the death of her American husband somehow nullified or jeopardized her American citizenship, and she was sent back to Australia on the promise that it was just temporary and that she and her girls would be allowed to return once the legalities were worked out. Other articles make it seem like Mary took the girls to Australia willingly, you know, just to visit for like an extended visit with family. Either way, Once Cleo Platt's widow and children were in Australia, 
they were stuck there. The death benefit that Mary had been getting stopped because she was no longer in the U.S., um, so she had no money at all to fight to get back to the U.S. or even to travel back, you know, just the logistics of the the travel back here itself. Um, And then because she was gone for so long, she was threatened with the permanent loss of her U.S. citizenship, but they wouldn't let her back in to (laughs) just... Some fucking thank you to the widow of a slain police officer, no? Anyway, when Bugs Morehouse found out about the situation, he sent Mary a letter, firstly apologizing for killing her husband, nice thing to do, then offering to throw his family's money and influence behind her campaign to return to America with her children. He told her that he had a good job as an electrician lined up if he was granted parole and that he would do anything that he could to help her, which was a hell of a lot more than Eaton County was doing at the time. So Mary Platt wrote a letter to the parole board requesting that both James Morehouse and Hawthorne Sutton's sentences be commuted. And eventually they were. On December 30th, 1948, after serving 20 years in prison for first-degree murder, 41-year-old Hawthorne Sutton's sentence was commuted, and he was released from prison. Four years later, on January 31, 1952, 45-year-old James Bugs Morehouse was also released from prison. I have no idea what happened to either one of them after that. The news stories went cold. There's really no, no further information that I was able to find about how their lives turned out once they were released. As far as what happened to Mary Platt and her daughters, I couldn't find any articles about their return to the U.S. I guess it wasn't, you know, considered newsworthy. But they did make it back at some point because when Mary died at age 69 in 1954, she was buried in a cemetery in San Diego, according to Find a Grave. Thank you, Find a Grave. Um, When Shirley died, her daughter Shirley, her oldest, in 1974, she was also buried in San Diego And then Doris's 2009 obituary states that she was living in Reno, Nevada when she passed. So, um, yeah, they they did somehow at some point make it back to the U.S. I did find one interesting thing that I want to share with you guys. Um, I found this on a memorial page for fallen officers. This was left in the comments under Cleo Platt's story. It said, Grandpa, although we never met, your oldest daughter turned out to be my mom. I always looked up to police officers as I grew up, but I never understood why mom did not want me to become a police officer. Once I found out about you, I understood her concern. I thought about you in every law enforcement job I ever had and knew that I always had to go home safe. After nearly 39 years as a police officer, I finally got to retire and be with my wife. By the way, She raised three wonderful children who turned out to be appreciative of a man who gave his life to being a public servant just like you. I love you. Signed, Sergeant, I'm not going to say his name. I mean, he put it on a public forum, but I'm still, I'm not going to say his name, partly because I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but we'll keep that between you and I. (laughs) Uh, And that's it. A Charlotte story as requested by Patreon subscriber Michael Scott. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main sources for today were lots and lots of old newspaper articles and the website eatoncounty.org. 
You can find a full list of resources for today's episode on the page for this episode on the SoDead website. All right, who is ready for a little liquid cheese? Before we get into today's liquid cheese, I just need to make a correction from last time. Um, If you've listened to the last episode of So Dead, number 75, right? It was A, like a milestone episode, number 75. Two, it was my return from my summer break. um, And I couldn't get my shit together to get it out to you guys, even on a Tuesday. I put it out on like a (laughs) Friday. That's the first time I've ever done it. And hopefully the last time. Learn my lesson. Do not plan an episode to come out two days after the Festival of Oddities because it's just not going to happen. So I was in a hurry to get that one done for you guys. And I did the liquid cheese and I told you the story that I meant to tell you, but I didn't preface it the way that I meant to. And my husband reminded me of that. What I meant to confess to you was that I was once in Playboy. Um... (laughs) I was in Playboy's online magazine because of my Sons of Anarchy fan fiction. I told you it was fucking good. You guys got to listen to me. Um, yeah, so that was supposed to be the segue into me telling you that I used to write Sons of Anarchy fan fiction was that I made it into Playboy because of it. But I ruined it because I was tired and in a hurry and I messed it all up and I'm sorry. It would have been a good story if I had gotten it right. For today's liquid cheese, I'm kind of running out of like the true crimey related things. So I'm just going to kind of keep it like gross and traumatic for as long as I can. So today, I want you guys to tell me about your broken bones. Have you ever broken a bone? How many? How'd you do it? I guess this could be a little true crimey, like if you broke it. You know, falling through the ceiling of a store you were robbing or something. You broke your arm. That that could be true crimey. I have broken all of my bones. No, not really. Um, I broke a lot of bones when I was really little. I was very breakable. I was very clumsy. I um, fell off our front porch in the snow and broke my collarbone when I was like one and a half. And then before I was two, I pulled a giant cabinet down on top of myself and broke my leg, like my femur on my left leg. I was in the hospital in traction for several weeks. There are lots of horrible pictures. And I swear to God, I swear to God, I remember how itchy those casts were. They put both of my legs in casts because I was two, right? And I broke my growth plate and they didn't want my right leg to grow longer than my left leg. Spoiler alert, it did anyways. Yeah, so both of my legs were in casts for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. My mom would know how long exactly. I just, yeah, a long time. And I swear to God, I remember the feeling. I was little, I was two, but I remember the feeling of the casts on my legs. And I think that is where my problem with like um, clothing comes from. I cannot wear tights. I... Oh, no. I That's why I hardly ever wore dresses. I can't wear tights. I can't wear itchy, tight-fitting stuff. I get so claustrophobic. Like, I still, at 40 years old, okay, fine, I'm 41. At 41 years old, I still rip the tags out of the backs of my shirts. Like, I just, yeah, I think that's where that comes from. And then nothing broken for a long time, nothing significant. Like, 
a broken toe as a teenager that they couldn't really do anything about, a hairline fracture in my nose from my phone falling on my face in the middle of the night, off my headboard where it was perfectly safe and sound. That's what you get for living in a haunted house. Until two years ago when I um, broke my arm, my poor little arm that still hurts every day. And I still have to put either an ice pack or a heating pad on it every day. Um, I can't talk about it a whole lot because of legal reasons. Um, I've mentioned it before, though. But yeah, I broke my arm kind of right at the elbow and tore and dislocated and sprained every other part of my arm from my fingertips to my collarbone. So fun fact that I'm sure most of you have realized is that when you're older, you don't bounce back as quickly. Your bones don't bounce back as quickly. So I will probably always just have this arm that hurts so bad. Um, Like, it's just so bad. And I have this job now, right? My bookstore, I have to carry heavy books all the time. And it will just give out on me. I just drop books all over the place. I'll be carrying a heavy box and my arm will just be like, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. We're not going to do that anymore. And then I drop it and it's sad. Yeah, I thought I had better stories about all of my breaks and whatnot. I guess I don't. But uh, I'm sure that some of your stories about your broken bones are good. So I want to hear them. I want to hear them. I want them to make me cringe. Also, this is our September 21st-ish episode, right? Um, The week of September 20th. So we're really, really getting close to Halloween. We are going to do our ghost stories episode for Halloween again. So if you have a good ghost story that you want to share... You can message it to me on Facebook. You can email it to me, sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure in your message or your email that you specify whether you want it to remain anonymous because if you don't tell me to keep your name out of it, I'm using your name. So um, make sure to specify that for me. (sighs) What else? I think that's it. I think that's it for today. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of So Dead. Uh, new episodes coming your way in just a couple of weeks. And yeah, between now and then, if you're not following on all of the socials, make sure that you're doing that. Lots of good discussions go on in the So Dead Podcast discussion group on Facebook. Lots of fun stuff on TikTok, which is, that is just under Scream Queen 517 um, Yeah, that's it. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane. And keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks.